Our uh, scripture reading this morning is taken from uh, Luke chapter 5. We are done with our time this summer that we spent uh, in the Old Testament looking at the Ten Commandments. We're going to spend a couple weeks in the Gospels, um, and I'm going to tell you about in a minute. But our scripture reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter 5, uh, verses 27 uh, to 32. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is God's word. Father, we thank you for uh, this beautiful worship that we've been able to participate in this morning, Lord, and the gifts of your people as they share within the context of our community to, to lift up your name and to glorify you. But Father, we pray now for uh, our time just thinking for the next few minutes and meditating on your word. We pray that, uh, that your spirit would work through your scriptures uh, to change our hearts. Help us to see the power and the beauty of you and the power of the beauty of the message of the gospel as it works in our hearts. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so as I said before, we're going to spend the next couple weeks uh, taking a look at the gospels. These are uh, four different eyewitness accounts that are in the beginning of the New Testament, each one kind of uniquely looking at the story of Jesus and uh, giving account of uh, his interaction with people when Christ was here on this earth. Uh, But we're going to do it a little different this time because we're going to look through a specific lens. We're actually going to look through the Gospels in these stories about Jesus, but we're going to look through it through the lens of meals. And I think what we'll find is that meals carried a great significance in Jesus' day, and in many ways uh, they do in our day as well. So the first thing that really becomes apparent, especially when you look at the Scriptures and the Gospels in particular, is that meals are important. There's an importance to meals, not just in their society, but in ours as well, but also when we get a fuller understanding of the nature of God's kingdom. Uh, Last Saturday, um, just a week ago, we wanted to do something special for our kids. We knew it was, uh, in many ways, the last weekend of their summer, and uh, it was the first weekend, uh, the first, the weekend right before they went back to school, so uh, my wife had the the wonderful idea of let's do something special for dinner. So we, uh, we called our, our local seafood place, and we got a dozen and a half crabs, and uh, it was the first time we'd had crabs in a while, and we sat on our back porch. Uh, it was pouring down rain while we were eating, but we sat on our back porch and ate crabs, and then afterwards we, we cooked up some burgers and had some pasta, and by the end, we were so full, we couldn't even move around the house. Uh, but we did that because we wanted to do something special to really mark uh, the end of summer and to mark the beginning of school. And when you think about it, uh, for centuries, all sorts of ethnicities and people groups and cultures have have done their part to honor special occasions through feasting. 
All right? So just think about it for a minute. We celebrate weddings with great big receptions, with feasting. We even have feasting around funerals. We think about uh, coming-of-age ceremonies like sweet sixteens and, and, and uh, quinceañeras and um, uh, bar mitzvahs, and all those are attended with a great big feast. When someone is sick or a baby is born, what do we do? We knock on their door and we bring them meals for them to celebrate or to care for them. And we do all this because we want to show hospitality or we want to express some sort of care. And what we instinctively realize is that these meals have a binding characteristic to them. Uh, If you go on our website and you click on our sermon page, there's a link on there to a great TED Talk uh, by a woman named Carolyn Steele. And uh, the talk is all about how food shapes our culture. And she said something on there, I think I put it as a quote on the front of your bulletin. She said that few acts are more expressive of companionship than the shared meal. Someone with whom we share food with is likely to be our friend or well on their way to becoming one. You see, if you want to get to know someone, go share a meal with them and something unique will happen in the midst of the, of the two of you as you share that meal. In some ways, the significance of this can be really lost in our culture, maybe even in a different way than in Jesus' culture that we just read about. You see, our, our culture and, and the, the culture surrounding meals are really challenged by two things. One, time, and the other, the abundance of food in our culture today. We, we can obviously realize time, that there's so many pressures that come against our schedules, and every year seems like we run out of time quicker than the year before that. Sometimes it's going to be very hard to sit down and to share a meal quietly and slowly with someone. So sometimes time presents a challenge, but also the abundance of food in many ways has the ability to take away its significance. You see, in ancient cultures and in many modern cultures in the third world today, food is a much more precious commodity than it is here in our American culture. It's, It's harder to come by simply by means of access. See, if you and I want to go and get a burger, what do we do? We go to the grocery store, we buy a burger, we fire up the grill, and we cook that burger and we share it with one another. But in ancient cultures, there was much more of a process that came when it came, when it came to meals and feasting. You would have to, to, to often kill an animal that you had raised from the time that it was a calf. You'd have to carefully prepare it for hours, sometimes days, and then you would share the fruit of that labor with your neighbor and your friends. You see, often in ancient cultures, food had a much more kind of culture around it and a much more significance to it. But despite even the challenges that we face in our American culture, meals are still a vital and significant part of our everyday lives. Now, all of the gospel writers share a unique perspective on the life of Jesus. That's what makes them so rich as they give their varied perspective. But I think the gospel of Luke tends to be an important one. You see, Luke particularly wrote to an urban and affluent society, in many ways not all that different than the society in which we live in today. 
But one of the things that Luke also does is he likes to tell Jesus' story through the lens of meals and feasting. You see, Luke is the only gospel writer that found it important to say this, that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Uh, Robert Karras, who's a, a commentator, said this. He said, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. In fact, it was so common for Jesus to be at all these different meals that many of his critics and his detractors said that Jesus was nothing more than a drunkard and a glutton because he spent so much time in meals. And I think that's because Jesus believed in the significance of sharing meals with others. It bonded him uniquely with his creation. Isn't it interesting to think that the God of the universe took on skin and dwelt among us and spent most of his time dining with his creation? But these meals also became occasions. They became occasions for him to communicate the nature of God's kingdom. And this story that we read is no different. You see, in Jesus' culture, uh, sharing a meal with someone uh, carried a certain societal clout to it. You see, if you wanted to to climb the social ladder in Jesus' day, you would seek out an invitation at someone's table that was higher than you on the social scale or the social ladder. Someone higher than you that could advance you in that society. So it wasn't just important for that. Uh, It wasn't just important in this societal sense, but it was also a society that mixed um, the culture and religion much more inextricably than you and I do. So if you wanted to climb the social ladder, if you wanted to climb the religious ladder, then you would make sure that you got good invitations to good people's homes. Because who you chose to dine with carried great societal and religious significance. And that's why this passage carries so much power to it. Because what we find here is that Jesus chooses to dine with a repentant sinner. And in the process, what he does is he spurns the anger of the prideful Pharisees. And what I'd like to do just really quickly is look at those two extremes that all surrounded this event of Jesus sharing a meal. The first character really is this repentant sinner. Look at verse 27. After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Verse 29, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. See, when this, when this story happened, Jesus was in the very early parts of his public ministry. And he began right from the beginning of teaching and gathering his disciples. So as any good rabbi or teacher would do, he began by gathering disciples who would sit underneath his teaching for the next uh, three years. 
And these are the people who would live with Jesus, who would dine with Jesus, who would sit under his teaching for really what was total three years of his life. Jesus would spend three years of his life investing in each one of these disciples. Now, if I was Jesus and I was about to spend three years of my life with a certain group of people, I would want to make sure that I wanted to check each one of their references very carefully before I chose to invest in them. I would make sure that I would be impressed with this person, person's credentials. I would want to know about all of their annoying habits ahead of time. I would want to make sure that the person that I'm about to invest in is worthy of my intention and my investment. But that's not what Jesus does. Instead, what Jesus does is he finds the most unlikely and in many ways the most unwanted and unworthy candidates, and he chooses to invest in them in the most intense of ways. The passage tells us about a man named Levi, who we learn later from some of the other gospel accounts is the disciple Matthew. What the story tells us is Levi is just sitting at his booth doing his work, collecting taxes, just as he did every other day when Jesus confronts him. Jesus walks up to him and says something very simple. He says, Levi, follow me. Now, Levi's job was a very lucrative job. It was a good job, but it was certainly not a popular job. See, these tax collectors uh, collected taxes on goods that that would be carried throughout the Roman Empire. They were hired by that empire to collect these taxes. And their presence would, at best, irk the indigenous culture, meaning their presence would be a symbol of kind of the thumb of oppression from the Roman Empire that hung over this people group. Now, Levi was a Jew. He was of that people group, but he had consorted in many ways with the Romans. And in the process, he had made quite a good career, or at least a very hefty profit because of it. You see, tax collectors could add on to that tax and keep whatever they added on for themselves, and many of them were extremely wealthy because of it but it also made them particularly hated by their own people. Because generally, tax collectors would be wildly exploitative in the amount of taxes that they added on. I was just reading a story this morning about um, uh, things that are going on in Florida in anticipation of this hurricane that is coming, and reading really sad stories about people who are exploiting the situation— by raising uh, the money on gas and groceries, the basic necessity, raising money on flights, on means for people to uh, escape this, this horrible uh, natural disaster that is about to come their way. And many people reporting about this are reporting on these people with incredible disdain and hatred because they are taking an awful situation and exploiting it for their own gain. Well, in many ways, that is exactly what these tax collectors did. But they didn't just do it in a moment of crisis. They did it every single day. 
Because if someone didn't pay them their fee, if someone didn't pay the tax collectors, then they could be arrested by the Roman authorities in that very moment. So needless to say, the Jews would have despised Levi because he was a tax collector. His own people would have hated him. They would have viewed him in the same way that our culture views pimps and informants. And yet Jesus approaches him. Out of all the people to approach, Jesus approaches him and says, follow me. And in that moment, what Luke tells us is that Levi left everything in a moment's notice and followed Jesus. You see, there are two big scandals in this narrative. Scandal one was that Jesus would pick someone of Levi's character to be one of his disciples. He would pick Levi to invest so much of himself, someone that everyone else would view to be an unworthy character. But the second scandal that goes even farther is that Jesus would choose to go and feast with Levi. You see, what the passage tells us is that Levi, out of, out of his abundance and out of this overwhelming sense of his encounter with Jesus, decides to throw a party. And what he chooses to do is invite all of his sinners and his tax collector friends to come to this party and to dine with Jesus. And Jesus attends with joy. He enjoys himself while he is there. He participates in every element of the celebration. He, in many ways, gets really cozy with that culture's riffraff. And while sitting at the table, Jesus reminds all of us that this is why he came. He says in verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to dine with sinners. He came to invest in those who everyone else deemed as unworthy and worthless. And not everyone was particularly happy about it. There were other characters in this story as well. You see, who Jesus chose to dine with angered one particular people group more than anybody else. We read about the prideful Pharisees in this story. You see, the Pharisees were the Jewish religious professionals of Jesus' day. They were respected in their culture for being close to God and being experts on God's law and God's will, and because of that, they were esteemed in their culture. Again, it was a culture that mixed politics and religion so that these were the most esteemed, esteemed and honored figures in all of Jesus' culture and Jesus' day. But here's what is so wild about it. They hated Jesus. They couldn't stand Jesus. They couldn't stand everything that he did. Verse 30, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You see, the Greek here for grumbled is not as strong as what it ought to be. It ought to be more like they were despised. They were horrified that Jesus would dine with sinners. 
See, these Pharisees were particularly concerned with ritual and moral purity. So to touch a known sinner, much less to to dine with a known sinner, was the ultimate violation of their picture of purity. They would make every effort to quarantine themselves from people who were just like Levi, and yet Jesus chooses to feast with him. See, this meal was disruptive on all sorts of fronts. It was disruptive for everyone who was involved. In many ways, this meal was disruptive for both the sinners that were there and the religious that were there as well. You see, the passage alludes to the fact that Levi repented, meaning that he turned away from the way that he was living and instead chose to follow Jesus. He turned away from aiming his life in one direction and chose to aim it in the direction of Jesus' will and his desires for his life. You see, Levi could not live the way he did before and still follow Jesus. But even knowing all that, he did not hesitate for a moment because what he saw in Jesus was far more valuable than the lifestyle that he had been living before. So Jesus disruptively spoke into the ear religion of Levi, and this, of course, led to his changed life. It led to his repentance. But Jesus also spoke against the religiosity or the religion of the Pharisees. And what you find throughout the gospel is that Jesus was disruptive everywhere he went, but he was especially disruptive to the religious people in his culture. You see, Jesus disrupted everything that the religious people believed about following God. He disrupted their picture of who is worthwhile and who isn't. He disrupted their picture of what the true nature of the kingdom of God is really all about. He redefined for them what purity is really all about. And the religious people hated him for it. They worked against him because of it. And in the end, they had him crucified because of how he disrupted their picture of the kingdom of God. Two things become really immediately clear about the gospel from this passage. One, sinners were drawn to Jesus. And two, religious people were repulsed by him. So the question becomes for all of us whenever we confront this passage and passages like it, is who are we in this story? See, Luke very intentionally has a point in telling us this story. He, it, it begs the question by approaching us with this story, because in this story, two worlds are colliding, and what Luke wants us to ask is, where do we find ourselves in this story? You see, Levi, the sinner, when he was confronted by Jesus immediately recognized just how spiritually sick he was. He recognized in that moment the great need of his heart could only be met 
by Jesus. He recognized that forgiveness and grace could only be found in this person he was dining with. He recognized that he had absolutely nothing to offer Jesus, but Jesus had everything to offer him. So in an instant, he left it all and he followed Jesus. Pharisees, on the other hand, when they were confronted with Jesus, they hated him and they despised him. They remained blind in many ways to the true state of their hearts. In pride, they held on to their picture of goodness and righteousness. They were blind to just how sick they really were and just how much they needed Jesus. So instead, they dug their heels in and they held on tightly. They held on tightly to their reputation for being the good ones and for being the righteous ones. They held on tightly. You see, friends, pride in our goodness and our rightness will only ever lead us away from the table that Jesus sits at. But humble faith and repentance will always bring us to the table where Jesus dines. You see, in many ways, this story is an acted out or a lived parable that points to the nature, the true nature of Jesus' kingdom. You see, if you read all throughout the scriptures, you realize that the number one illustration God and Jesus uses to depict the nature of his kingdom is a great banquet, a great feast. So what does entrance to that ultimate table means. It means in humility, recognizing that we are the sick ones, and in repentance, accepting the free gift that Jesus Christ offers us through his sacrifice. So when Jesus comes to where you are sitting, when he meets you where you are with all of the disruptions that he brings, Will you leave everything to follow him, or will you hold on tightly, unable to really let go? Let's pray.